Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Ryan, a veterinarian and a veterinary behavior residency graduate. And I'm Dr. Serena. I'm also a veterinarian and current resident with the American College of Veterinary Behaviorists. So, Dr. Ryan, we did a video last week. Was it last week? I think it was last week. It, it was. It was. And there were a few comments in the comment section. So, one reader or listener, uh, viewer, <laughs> I don't know what you call them. Viewers. It must be viewers if you're on. No, it's, it's everywhere because I actually uploaded it to YouTube. I uploaded it to Spotify that also, also actually shows the video and supposed to automatically upload to uh, iMusic and to, I think, Google Podcasts or something. Okay. So it's all over. So we're so everywhere. <laughs> so one of our viewers... Uh, had a question here. So um, they would like to know uh, more in a future video about the topic of owner resource guarding as it relates to certain genetic breed characteristics. So this particular viewer has Dobermans. So why don't you tell the viewers what resource guarding is first and then how it relates to resource guarding owners yes yeah well and it, we need to be kind of careful with the terminology we use right i mean people or psychologists psychiatrists have that a book that kind of like defines every different behavior and uh, the dsm i think it's already dsm5 uh, right. out there and they have like different terms for specific behaviors, which sadly we don't really have in veterinary behavior. So I can give my own terminology for resource guarding, but you know, of course, if you have a different one, then uh, feel free to, to also kind of tell us what, what you use or what, or how you define the uh, resource guarding, but Basically, resource guarding, kind of like the name implies, uh, like the name implies, would be a dog, and very rarely a cat, but would be a dog that there is some sort of resource that the dog feels is very important to him or to her. So it can be something that's kind of like necessary for life, like food, like water but it can also be something that they basically just uh, like or enjoy, something that rewards them. So for example, that could be a toy, that could be a specific location. The resource doesn't necessarily need to be something physical. It can be a location and it can also be a person because, uh, you know, we only give a specific amount of time to our dogs or to our cats. So they might see us as a resource and want to keep us for themselves and then not allow other people or other animals to approach. And that brings us to the second part, not what the resource is, but actually what the um, guarding is. So the guarding is basically some sort of an aggressive behavior and where the dog will try to keep the other dog, the other person, or whoever he sees as a threat to the resource, he would try to keep them away. 
does that does that sound about right or do you have like that's different pretty pretty much how i would describe it as well so the human is the important or valuable resource to the dog or cat and something is threatening that resource in that it could be taken away from the dog or cat i'm going to include cats in there because my cat appeared to show some aggression towards my husband mm -hmm. when my husband would come and sit next to me and that kind of thing. So it does happen in cats as well, but like you said, more likely in a dog. The underlying emotions is something that we can talk about as well. So yeah. they could be experiencing fear. They could be experiencing anxiety because anxiety is that thought process of what might happen what if somebody takes away my mom and mom as in the pet parent not necessarily their like physical dog mom yeah but it can also be misinterpreted by a client so i hear very commonly that a dog is protecting the human so they're showing signs of aggression towards another person who's approaching and then the pet parent interprets that as protection. And so we don't want to uh, confuse those two. Right. Now That's there are going to be- Something yeah. very common, right? We hear it a lot like the, he's protecting me, he's protecting me. Yeah. And then we see it a lot in the vet clinic where let's say you have a dog who's protecting the owner and is aggressive towards the veterinary staff. And then the veterinary staff says, hey, they might actually be better without you. And the veterinary staff takes them to the back and all of that aggression goes away. Now we might actually see that that dog is actually more fearful and shut down um, in the back, in the treatment area. So that's another uh, flip side of seeing that type of aggressive behavior is that you just want to be able to say, okay, they are being aggressive, but you don't know what the underlying emotions are of that dog. Right. Yeah. And, and that's actually, uh, because I am still working as a general practitioner and, and I am seeing dogs that I need to draw blood on, uh, quite often. I do see it quite a lot and I do hear it quite a lot. The owners that are saying that, yeah, my dog is uh, protective of me and he's probably going to do better away uh, uh, from me so I can just step up or you can bring the dog to the back. And as you said, it's usually, even if the dog does stop fighting or does stop trying to bite us, it's not exactly the same as guarding the owners. It's not exactly like, this resource guarding or protection. It's neither of these things. It's just the fact that when we take the pet away from their uh, pet parents, then they just shut down, uh, like you said, or it's basically kind of like learned helplessness that the animal is no longer trying to fight because it's kind of like, oh, I'm all alone here, surrounded by all of these doctors and, and technicians. I should probably just, you know, freeze, not do anything. And hopefully it will uh, finish very fast. But 
the, the animal is probably even more stressed away from the owners. It's, it's a dilemma. I, I will admit because I am still doing uh, general practitioner work. It's a dilemma because sometimes when you need to get blood, you don't want anyone to get hurt. So if the animal is freezing away from the owners and then allows us to like quickly do everything, then I would still think that it's better than, you know, having to, to fight and, and someone might get uh, injured. But having said that, that's never my recommendation. Like if we have a pet like that, we actually want the owners to go and, you know, we will give them something like, I don't know, gabapentin or trazodone or, or something to reduce the, the stress, give it to the animal and come back uh, on a different time. If it's not like an emergency or, or anything like that, because that will actually reduce the stress and not just make the animal not fight us anymore. Yeah, for sure. So what you're getting into is what I call pre-visit pharmaceuticals or uh, essentially medications that are given to help um, dull the response is kind of what I would say that sometimes they're just a little bit more sedate. Um, like the gabapentin, you're putting a break on that brain that just is constantly wired to fight. Uh, yeah, so there's like this great study on gabapentin as a pre-appointment uh, medication that was written by someone really, really smart. That <laughs> wasn't, wasn't that you a couple of years ago? Oh, maybe, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We got into that conversation on the resident listserv about mm -hmm. how high are you going to go? In oh, that yeah, Gabapentin? I'm still amazed. I, I yeah. thought that when I published the study and I said that 50 milligrams per kilograms is, is kind of like a high dose, uh, then people would start, you know, feeling more comfortable using the high dose, uh, even though my study actually didn't show it was that effective as a single pre-appointment uh, pharmaceutical, but then seeing something like 200 milligrams per kilogram, but I don't think that there's a, you know, like a safety study to support it, right? I mean, I know that True. some people use that dose, but there wasn't any safety study that actually showed that it, that it was safe, the 200, right? right? True. True. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the challenge with clinical research. Yeah. Uh, because unless there is a drive to do uh, the research on dosing of medications, uh, yeah. it can be a bit of a challenge. Now that last part of that question was, is there anything that relates to certain breed characteristics? So for instance, the Doberman Pinscher was bred to be a guarding dog or a protection dog. Um, what kind of differences mm -hmm. might we see with breeds that might be resource guarding okay no and that's that's an important question but before that i have to show you something so i mentioned that i also work as a general practitioner and today someone walked in and let me look, let me open this thing and he said that i really look like eric stoltz and let me maybe I don't, make one I don't know who this is. So, so he's, he's an actor. Uh, he used to be kind of like bigger than he is today. 
uh, he actually did kind of like disappear. Uh, <laughs> he was supposed to play the guy on, on Back to the Future before, uh, you know. Michael J. Fox. Exactly. So we, good, good at Canadian the end, actor. Fox was a, but he was supposed to be the original one. So that's why I guess they share a lot of pictures of him in that movie, even though he's not there. But I guess this maybe is kind of like an updated one or something. I don't know. Okay. If it makes it bigger. It's it? the beard and the long hair. Yeah, I think it's like the the lighter eyes, like you know, the green eyes, the the red hair and the the beard or something. Yeah. I don't know. I don't I, I can't really see it. I actually think he looks more like my brother. But I don't know. <laughs> then he started calling me Eric the entire uh, <laughs> entire and like, huh? What? Oh, right, right, right. Got it, got it. But every time, for, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so if uh, like the next uh, uh, double ganger or whatever it's called on, on doppelganger, Facebook, yeah, then I'm I'm gonna use that guy. I always okay. say they don't have anyone, so I guess from now on. Yeah. If you think there's someone else, write down in the comments. Tell me who I look like. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have like someone that you use usually? As a doppelganger? Oh, yeah. I, or you like, you skip that thing. And like, I don't, but people cling to the name Serena. So they look for like Serena Gomez and... Uh, yeah, Serena Gomez, Serena Williams. The, the, ah, they just cling no, to the yeah. name. Yes. So it's, it's, that, it's that not necessarily count. someone that look looks like, like someone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, let, let's go back to the question. So, uh, Breeds, so it's, it's, again, kind of like a complicated question uh, or a very easy question, depending on how you look at it. Uh, we don't really have a lot of data that actually supports a really specific trait like resource guarding, uh, because resource guarding by itself is usually kind of considered an unwanted behavior. So usually the breeds will not be bred uh, to kind of like keep a specific behavior. And it is true that we'll say that, you know, specific breeds are supposed to be protecting the house more than other breeds and other breeds are supposed to be hunting more or, you know, herding dogs, oh, herding dogs, herding uh, um, cows or sheep or whatever. Uh, and we do see some kind of like a specific behaviors that, that might, might be seen more in those breeds uh, uh, versus others. But the variability, and I think we kind of like touched a little bit on it last, month, uh, last week, uh, the variability between the different dogs in the same breed is huge. I mean, we can see a Doberman, and both of them have the same father, the same mother. They have older paperwork, so they're like purebred. Uh, their parents are champions. One puppy, when he grows up, will behave in a specific way, while the other one will grow up and be a completely different type of personality and might actually not have any of, uh, even though they look exactly the same, might not have any of those 
behaviors uh, that are supposed to come with the breed. Uh, and I'm talking not just because of uh, the data, and of course, you know, if, if you have something else uh, that you know, uh, uh, please share it with us, but even from experience, because I see this behavior in almost all breeds. I mean, I never saw a breed that was more predisposed to having that problem uh, versus other breeds, even if technically some breeds are supposed to be more predisposed, but I just don't see it. And as far as I know, there's no support for it. Well, what do you think? So not specific to resource guarding as, as like a breed characteristic. I would agree with you. There's a wide variability. Um, I've certainly seen puppies early, early on show tendencies to resource guard food items. Yeah. Um, so for instance, I would see a puppy at its 12 week old uh, vaccine appointment and we often use those little licky mats. So we put a little wet food mm -hmm. in there. Their 12 week visit, it's perfect. They're like, licking the mat. They don't care that you're touching them. You're just like, oh, this is a wonderful puppy um, from like all of like the, the characteristics that you see. And then you see them again at 16 weeks. And same thing, I bring out the licky mat because I'm like, hey, like this worked out really well last time. And in the span of two weeks, I had three 16 work gold puppies resource guard that licky mat. So when they started to sh grab it and started growling and pulling it, I was like, okay, we're not going to use the licky mat anymore. <laughs> You're going to pull up a licky mat. Yeah. Yes. This, this is a licky mat. If anyone is wondering, I'm just. And, yeah. and then I said, oh, you do you ever use any like puzzle feeders or toys or anything like that? And it was just like a behavior that those clients had never seen before. Mm. But I think it's more learning than genetics yeah. you have a puppy who finds wet food very valuable and this is the first time or a second time or maybe third time that they're having wet food and they don't want you to take that away from them yeah <laughs> so and so i immediately just swap i'm like okay here's some treats instead because yeah. i don't want them to start growling while i'm touching them for their vaccine because they think that I'm going to take away their food items. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I think it's more from learning experience than anything. So yeah. we, we live in such a busy, busy, busy world. People work a lot, people jam pack their schedule. And so I think when it comes to owner attention and owner as the resource, because we're so busy, uh, the dogs value our time a lot more and they just don't have a lot of control over their lives. We control when they eat, we control when they go outside, we control when they go down for a bed. So we control them a lot. And so I think that by having less time for your puppy, they are going to be more likely to want to spend more time with you if you are there. Dobermans, however, are genetically predisposed to this blanket sucking. Right, that's true. And 
that's something that we know for sure is genetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And does that also contribute to compulsive behaviors? Mm -hmm. So what um, you're saying that maybe there is some interaction between the, those compulsive behaviors and like aggressive behaviors that might be perceived as a resource guarding? I think so. I think so. Because these, some of these dogs that are blanket suckers um, experience pica or pica, however you want to pronounce yeah. it, where they ingest non-food items. But is that because they're not being fed enough for their liking? And then food becomes a resource. And then does that just say that everything becomes a resource? The human who delivers the food is a resource. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a possible link to that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I agree. Uh, but in your experience, did you actually even see more uh, Dobermans with like that specific? I mean, not not the pika or pika. Uh, did you see anything I see with that? Yeah. <laughs> but not not human. Um, resource guarding. Yeah, no, but 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 I completely agree. I I mean, we do know that there is a connection between be behavior and medical issues. We do know that when there's like a skin problem, then maybe the animal is going to be much more sensitive than uh, than like much more sensitive to the touch, or might be kind of like more anxious because you know, again, kind of like expecting bad things to happen, expecting someone to touch the skin and, and make it feel worse or something like that. So they tend to be maybe even more aggressive and you treat the medical problem and all of a the sudden they're doing so much better even without actually needing to work on the behavior issue itself. So yeah, so it definitely makes a lot of sense. I agree. So true, so true. But yeah, the pica or pica it might not just be a digestive problem. It mm -hmm. might just be the whatever they acquire. And I don't know if anybody studied the level of dopamine that these dogs get from sucking yeah. this blanket, mm -hmm. but I suspect that it's related to dopamine or noradrenaline or a combination of both that they, they are getting some reward um, just like, uh, say cribbing and horses and endorphins. So yeah. there's some sort of inherent um, reinforcer that causes them to continue that behavior. Yeah. But I think that's different than resource guarding an, an owner. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that all Doberman pinchers would lean towards protecting their owner either. Yeah. So that's well, what I read for. Right. I mean, I can think of like uh, piggyback riding on what you just said about uh, kind of like, you know, the genetics uh, or behavior issues that we know are genetics uh, and how it might even cause something like protecting the owners. Again, not, not protecting the owners, but like resource guarding or doing a behavior that might 
look like resource guarding. That's that's maybe we need to be very clear. We don't necessarily say that there's resource guarding. We say that there's a behavior that might look like that. And it might be actually secondary to the behavior, to the medical issues. So for example, let, let's say that it is something like a pica that's either causing pain or as you said, the, the behavior itself is kind of self-rewarding uh, to the dog. And the dog just feels more secure around one person uh, than around someone else. And that by itself kind of causes the dog to be stressed when another family member or a stranger approaches. So it's not because the dog is guarding that person, it's just kind of like going back to the start about what we said with dogs that come to the clinic and they might behave in a very specific way next to the owners that might be much more aggressive, but the second that you take them away, they're not gonna do that behavior. So maybe it's something like that, like the fact that the dog is actually stressed from doing this pica or from whatever is causing the pica and he just feels better to become aggressive next to the owners, but he might, even if he will be doing this spike behavior away from the owners and then someone would approach him, maybe then he's not going to be aggressive. And again, it's, it's the presence of the owners and not because as something that makes the dog feel more secure than the actual, like protecting the owner, if that makes any sense. Yeah, for sure. So it it might come down to how that dog feels in its attachment with that human. So attachment theory in, in children where people um, can have a secure attachment or an insecure attachment with their, with their parents. Um, and the dogs will tend to have one particular individual that is their attachment figure. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the person that feeds them or walks them. It right. just happens to be the one where the dog feels most secure around. Yeah. And, and again, kind of brings us back to our discussion last week uh, when we mentioned the socialization period. Again, like many things that the dog will show as an adult might be related to the way that he was socialized or someone wrote in the comments last week, uh, habituated. So it's also kind of a big part of it, right? I mean, we want the dog to be nicely, calmly habituated to the presence of all kinds of things. So like you mentioned, uh, a puppy that already shows problems with uh, like behavior, doesn't want to be touched in specific ways and all of that. If we can do this, you know, like counter conditioning, desensitization, uh, hopefully it will lead to habituation and stuff like that, but we can make the dog as a puppy feel fine with all of these uh, things. Even by the way, procedures, uh, that the veterinarian is going to do. So, you know, like I always tell owners that bring me puppies and I say, when you're playing with the dog from time to time, kind of like touch the ears a little bit, touch the face, uh, raise the lips. So they can also brush the teeth later. And the dog is not like 
you know, afraid of being touched on the face and everything like that. Yeah. But it all goes down to what the owner and how the owners do it as a puppy. Right. So maybe yeah. the resource guarding is because of something that accidentally happened when the dog was a puppy. So for example, the as a puppy, they would give him some sort of a high value treat, but will take it away uh, while the dog was playing with it without like the example that you gave that you would say, uh, replace it with uh, some other high value treats, you know, like replacing it with a, a treat that the dog will eat right away instead of those chew boy, chew, uh, yeah. Yeah, the like chew boy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess also it might relate down to what does the relationship say, for instance, I'll just use my, myself and my husband as a, as an example. Hmm. Um, if I only have a finite amount of time to devote to the puppy and the puppy values that, uh, amount of time, but then I have to split my time between puppy and my husband, if the relationship between the puppy and my husband isn't good, mm -hmm. uh, or at least like in the balance where if you spend a lot of like good, valuable time, you get a lot of positive buildup in the bank. So then if you, if something negative happens, even if it's an accidental, like, oh, I accidentally stepped on your paw while you were right. walking right in front of me. Um, you, if you've had a lot of positive in the bank, a little negative um, still keeps that kind of balance. Yeah. Whereas let's say for instance, if you're yelling at your puppy all the time, you're building a lot of negative in that bank. You have to build up a lot of positive in that bank to get that same balance. Yeah. But if there's two people in that relationship and one is more positive, it's like good cop, bad cop, that can harm the relationship that that puppy has with the bad cop. And therefore it wants to guard the resource of the good cop. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that you can have that kind of dynamic in, in a home where you have one parent who's the disciplinary, uh, even when it comes to dogs, not even just children. Right. Yeah, and, 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 I think it's, it also makes a lot of sense when we're thinking about the different types or, or different methods of training. So many people, uh, would say that, you know, reward-based training or something that at least is based mainly on reward-based training, uh, is not as good as what they sometimes call, um, I, I forgot how it's called. They, they think, oh, balanced, balanced training. Balanced training. Sorry about that. And they say, oh, yeah, it's balanced because we use punishment. We teach the dog what not or what not to do, but we also teach the dog what to do and use rewards. So like using both things. But as you right. said, and, and, and this, by the way, we do have tons of study to support this claim. I mean, the claim that I'm going to make that we do see that reward only reward based training uh, this method is much safer it's much uh, more effective or at least as effective as a method that does have punishment so you know 
if you have a method that is as good, not even better, but is as good, but doesn't require me to be mean to my dog, then why choose the mean one? Because right. we can for sure train with just reward-based training um, or mainly what you know sometimes people call uh, positive reinforcement, although it's not necessarily accurate, but a lot of uh, or mainly positive reinforcement. And when we use both of these things, like we use punishment you know, or pun usually positive punishment, like we're actually doing something that scares or hurts or and just causes discomfort to the dog. But on the other hand, we're also giving treats. So one thing we're kind of like confusing the dog. It doesn't know what to do anymore. And two, it actually affects the human animal or the owner animal bond. And it's yeah. a big thing and that can cause many problems down the road. And as you said, it does seem, and that I think also true for people, like if someone did something bad to me, I will remember it forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not gonna forget in many, many years. I, I still remember people that told me things uh, when I was in high school, right? Because <laughs> even if they said like one really mean thing once, we're gonna remember, we're, we're gonna carry it for, for many years. They yeah. will actually need to, to be really nice to us and, and they really need to like build up this relationship we have with them before we can kind of like forget it and, or maybe not forget it, but kind of like trust that, okay, that was like just a one, one time thing, but they're actually nice people and we do enjoy being with them. And the right. same is true for, for our pets. So, you know, if it was accidentally one time that we stepped on the dog, but the rest of the time we're really being nice and, and you know, the dog likes being around us, and that's awesome. If we're using both of these methods at the, at the same time, we're scaring the dog or hurting the dog, and we're also giving treats, it's it's going to cause a lot of problems. Yeah. So that comes into what we would call conflict. Yeah. So conflict of emotions where the dog feels two things at once. They like you, they want to be next to you, but they're also worried or anxious that you might hurt them. And that's what conflict is, is that they might approach and retreat because they're not sure, oh, is today going to be the day you're going to hit me? Or mm, like, maybe you're going to give me a treat. So it's that like approach retreat type of behavior that we see. Yeah. And I very commonly you see it at the, at the vet clinic is you hand over a treat and then they're like, yeah, great, thanks. I'll take the treat. But as soon as the treat is gone, they don't want anything to do with you. Yeah. And so that's just a, a source of conflict. And so reducing conflict um, is just sort of part of like our management strategy. Mm -hmm. To come back to that uh, comment where you say, oh, well, balanced is better. Uh, we use the humane hierarchy. So it's not just about positive reinforcement. It's about setting that dog up for success or antecedent derangement. If you don't think back on setting up both yourself and that dog up for success, then both of you are going to end up frustrated. Both of you are going to end up with having that negative association even with that setup. So thinking about how can I set up myself and this dog for success comes before positive uh, reinforcement, before negative reinforcement, all of that comes before that. And yes, people, 
I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying to show but it now. Right? Hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And pain. We can't forget about that pain. So what was the what was it? Twenty eight to eighty two percent of dogs that oh, mm -hmm. were referred to veterinary behaviorists had a pain component, and I yeah. see it quite often. And same thing, you just like you mentioned about treating the itchy dog, treating the painful dog may be the only thing you need to help with the problem behaviors. Yeah, yeah, no, that's com completely true. And you know, again, even uh, for patients that do come to the to the veterinarian, we need to remember that first they're sick, they might be in pain they associate pain with going to the vet, right? They usually get vaccines. They usually get blood drawn. Uh, their, their butt might be probed. You know, not, not things that most uh, dogs or people would like. Yeah. And uh, most, I mean, you know, there are the people that would like that, would like it, <laughs> not judging anyone, but, but most don't. Only if you buy them dinner first. Exactly. Yeah, there's something like that. So, you know, we do offer them a treat. I mean, not the owners, the, the, the dogs, we do <laughs> offer them a treat, but it might not be uh, enough in those situations. Yeah. Uh, and that's why uh, we actually, and we need to be, some owners are not even aware of it, by the way. But again, there are like plenty of studies done on you know, stress of dogs coming, dogs and cats coming to the uh, to the veterinarian and I think in dogs depending on the study that you're uh, quoting but some of them show that even as high as 80 percent of the dogs showed at least one sign of stress so 80 percent mm -hmm. meaning that most of our clients as a piece for like general practitioners most of them are afraid when they come to see us so you know, yeah. if, if someone needs something to make them feel better, like some gabapentin or something like that, nobody should feel bad giving it. Not the owners, not the, not the veterinarians. It, it doesn't mean that we did something wrong or that we failed. Just the opposite. Sure. We're trying to make yeah. the, the pet feel better. And that, it makes me think about this dentist I used to have who would never touch my mouth unless I had an Ativan. <laughs> so, unless you had what, sorry? Ativan, Lorazepam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because of you or he did it the same to everyone? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we're at 38 minutes. Do you yes. want so let's, to let's, uh, pause here? For today? Mm -hmm. And we'll do it again uh, next week, I guess. And for any of our viewers, listeners, again, you can feel free to write us some comments down below. What do you agree or if you disagree with us? I mean, we're probably going to ignore if you disagree with us, but <laughs> write, it down, write it down anyways. And of course, if you have any questions or if you know someone that does look like Dr. Serena, so she can use it for the next uh, Facebook dou double ganger or whatever it's called. Uh, Cause I'm going to use Eric Stoltz for sure. 
<laughs> and next time, I think we should address that other question that was in the comments. Yeah. And that was the, the thoughts on neutering a three-year-old stranger danger, fearful American bulldog. So that's another question that we yeah, should that's, address that's next week. Actually a big topic. Yeah. And it is. See you it next is. week. Bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.